Ladies and gentlemen, we have another crazy person for you. You just met the crazy Paul Young. Now we're going to introduce you to a real crazy person. How many of you have read this book? Now, this guy is so crazy that this was the second time it was put out. The first one, he may have to correct me, but I believe it had just as many footnotes as it had text. Because what he was saying in the text was so wild, he had to explain himself through the footnotes. That was the only book I ever read all of the footnotes in just to see if I was crazy or if he was crazy. How many of y'all read the footnotes? You had to. <laughs> he was so crazy that he would put it in the front of a book, if you don't want your Christianity tested, go to Goodwill and give this thing away. <laughs> now you're the only crazy people put that in a book. <laughs> and don't even go when the office hours in. Go after hours and put it in the little thing they put behind the goodwill so they won't see you coming. No, he didn't say that part. But, but they're safe. So if you read this book, I want to share this with you. This is the first part of a story. It is not the complete story. If you read this, you saw the problem. If you get this you'll see a peep into the solution. This is the other part of the story, reimagining church. So family, will you put your hands together with me and let's welcome our crazy brother, Frank Viola. Even I haven't read all the footnotes. <laughs> brother Tony Dale, wherever you are, I mistakenly thought that you liked me. Thank you so much for making me speak after Paul Young. How in the world does somebody follow that? If you are 35 years old or younger, would you please stand up? Give him a hand, definitely. Praise the Lord. You can sit down now. May your tribe increase. When I was reading the brochure, the business marketplace track stood out to me. And I kept thinking of a story over and over again. And it goes like this. One day, three ministers died and went to heaven. A Catholic priest, a Baptist pastor, and a Pentecostal preacher. And when they arrived at the pearly gates, Peter greeted them and he said, Gentlemen, listen, we're really backed up here. We have no room for you, but don't worry. I'm going to handle it. So Peter called Lucifer. And he said, Lucifer, listen, we, we've got a problem. We're really backed up right now. Three of our own just checked in. Can you put them in a comfortable place down there just for two weeks? Lucifer said, fine, send him down. Five days later, Peter gets a call. It's Lucifer. 
And Lucifer says, listen, this is not working out. You've got to get these guys out of here right now. And Peter says, what's the problem? And Lucifer says, the Catholic priest is forgiving everybody of their sins. And the Baptist pastor is getting everybody saved. But the worst problem of all is the Pentecostal preacher. He's raised enough money to air condition the entire place. <laughs> so that's what I was thinking about when I was seeing the business marketplace in the ministry. One of the most fascinating passages in the Gospels is Luke 24. And there we have the story of two disciples who are walking away from Jerusalem to the little village of Emmaus, where they live. Now, it's Sunday evening. That very morning, Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. But these two disciples don't know that. These two disciples are probably husband and wife. They're most likely Cleopas and his wife Mary. Both are mentioned in John 19. And they have been following Jesus for quite some time, and their heads are down, and they're walking toward Emmaus, and they are disheartened, they are disappointed, and they're perplexed. Because you see, they thought that they were following the Messiah. And they expected him to deliver Israel from pagan domination. But the Romans crucified him. So to their mind, he couldn't have been the Messiah. And as they're talking and walking, they're joined by a mysterious stranger. And the mysterious stranger says, what is it that you're talking about? What is it that you're so sad about? And they stop. And they say, haven't you heard? Jesus of Nazareth, a prophet mighty in word and deed. We thought he was the Messiah. We thought he was the one to save Israel. And the Romans killed him. They don't recognize that this is Jesus talking to them. That's who the stranger is. And Jesus Christ, interestingly enough, doesn't say, hey guys, hello, it's me. I'm risen from the dead. Instead, he tells them the story differently from the way they'd heard it. I'm going to repeat that. He tells them the story differently. Tells them the story differently from the old, tired way they had heard it all their lives. He says, you have not understood the story correctly. You have been reading the Bible through the wrong lens. And beginning with Moses through all the prophets, he unfolds the story and he tells it differently. And as they're listening to the story unfold, it's making sense. And Luke says their hearts burn within them. Their hearts were warmed. 
Evening is falling, and in that day, you do not want to be walking in the evening. It's very unsafe. So they're a hospitable couple because they're followers of Jesus. And they say, come to our home. Stay with us. It's evening. And the strange, mysterious stranger accepts the invitation. And as they're sitting at the table, the stranger breaks the bread, blesses it, and passes it. And at that moment, the two disciples recognize him. Their eyes are opened, and they see who he is, and he vanishes. And Luke makes this statement. When he broke the bread, their eyes were opened, and they knew. Their eyes were opened, and they knew it was him. Now, those words should sound very familiar to you. Their eyes were opened, and they knew. You see, because there was another couple who at one time ate a different kind of food, and their eyes were opened, and they knew. What is this? It's a replay of Genesis chapter 3. When the first couple fell. What's the message? In his resurrection, the Lord Jesus Christ has reversed the fall. Yeah, you should clap. That's good news. <laughs> Their eyes were open and they knew. In his resurrection, he reversed the fall. And he brought in a new creation. That's powerful. What does it have to do with us? Well, we're living in a day, brothers and sisters, where many people are walking to and fro, disheartened, disappointed, perplexed. Most Americans have heard a version of the gospel at one time in their life, but they heard the story incorrectly. It's had no power and no registration at all. And the need of the hour today is for the church of the living God to come alongside them and tell the story differently. Not different from the intention that the authors of Scripture had but different from the old, tired way they'd heard it all their lives. Why? So that their hearts will burn within them and their eyes will open to see this incredible, glorious Christ who's irresistible if we can but get a glimpse of him. That's my introduction. I would like to give you an example, a small, small example of how we can tell the story differently. You can entitle this message, Diary of a Desperate Samaritan Woman. I give credit to Tyler Perry for inspiring the title. Diary of a Mad Black Woman. Here's what I'd like you to do. I want you to close your eyes and listen to this story. I want you to concentrate on the narrative. Diary of a Desperate Samaritan Woman. Dear Diary, 
I met a most unusual man today, a man who would end up changing my life. It's been 10 years since I've cried tears of joy. For the past decade, I have known rejection, sorrow, desperation, and even thoughts of suicide. Most nights I cry myself to sleep. They're tears of bitterness and heartbreak. But today, I shed tears of happiness. It all happened when I met him, this stranger, this Jew. Ever since my third divorce, I've been visiting the well of Jacob at noon to draw water. I grew tired of the scornful stares from the other women in town when I would visit the well in the mornings, the time when most women of Sychar go there to draw water. The day began just like most of my days. I woke up with the shame of my past and the guilt of my present. I reflected on all the rejection I've faced, all the times I've loved and have never been loved in return, all the slam doors, all the abuse, all the heartache. By mid-morning, I thought to myself, why am I still living? There's no hope left. It slipped through my hands long, long ago. Around noon, I took my water pot, my bucket, and my rope, keeping my head down to make sure that I make no eye contact with anyone in town. I can sometimes hear the snickers and spot the wagging heads in my peripheral vision as I walk through the village. When I arrived at the well, something was different. It's usually vacant. But today, I saw a man sitting on the ground. His eyes were closed, his legs outstretched and his hands folded. His back was up against the hot gray well. He looked completely exhausted. I could tell by looking at his clothes that he was a Jew. And I thought to myself, what's a Jewish man doing here? He opened his eyes and I quickly looked away dipping my bucket into the hundred-foot well. Then he spoke, and by his accent, I knew for sure that he was a Jew. He said, would you please give me a drink of water? I was shocked. What's a Jew doing talking to a Samaritan, I thought. I haven't had a Jewish person say two words to me since I was a little girl. In fact, I still remember those words. They were horribly insulting. But my shock was twofold because this Jew was a male. And Jewish men don't speak to Samaritan women. In their eyes, we were all born defiled. I couldn't resist my feelings, so I quizzed him. I asked him how he could make a request for a drink from me being that he was a Jew and I was a Samaritan. What I was really thinking was, you Jews won't give us Samaritans the time of day unless you need something. But I didn't say that. You see, there was a feature about this Jewish man that prevented those words from leaving my mouth. I saw kindness in his eyes, and I heard it in his voice. He then said something to me that I'll never forget. He said, if you knew God's gift and who I am, 
you would be asking me for living water and I would give it to you. I was again puzzled. I also thought that this was a rather arrogant thing to say, seeing that he had nothing to draw water with. So I responded, Sir, this well is over a hundred feet deep, and you have no bucket, and you have no rope. Where are you going to get this living water from? I wanted him to know that Jacob is my father, just as the Jews claim him to be. I've always wanted to tell a Jew that we Samaritans are not half-breeds, like they say we are. So I added, are you greater than our father Jacob, who dug this well and drank from it? His response both astounded and intrigued me. He said, if you keep coming to this well, you will always thirst. But if you drink the water that I can offer you, you will never thirst again. In fact, the water that I give will flow from within you eternally. I have to admit that I had no idea what he was talking about, but he was so confident and I felt a sense of care and acceptance coming from him that I've never felt from any man before. And he was a Jew. I thought to myself, if you could give me water that would forever quench my thirst, I wanted it. I loved the idea of not having to walk to this well every afternoon. So I called his bluff and asked him to give me this living water. His response made my heart race and then sink. He asked me to bring my husband to the well. Within that request, he touched an open wound that is never healed. My first thought was to lie and tell him that my husband was unavailable. But I just couldn't say that for some reason. He was so kind, so respectful. There was a warmth about him. I still couldn't believe that this Jewish man was speaking to me. So I told him the truth without rehearsing the pain of being constantly rejected by men. Neither did I want him to know that I had given up on the idea of marriage and I opted to live in sin instead. So I simply said, I have no husband. What he said next startled me to no end. He commended me for telling him the truth. And then he told me that I have had five husbands in my life and that the man I was living with now wasn't my husband. I froze. Here was a Jewish man who was offering me living water even though he knew about my past. Here was a prophet who knew all about me and yet he treated me with respect. I didn't know what to do, except that I didn't want to dwell on the subject. So I quickly changed the topic of conversation. I told him that he must be a prophet, and then I asked him a religious question. I said, we Samaritans worship on Mount Gerizim, and you Jews worship on Mount Zion. Which one of us is correct? He really didn't answer my question. Instead, he told me that God is a spirit and that he is a father to his children. This was a brand new idea to me. He then said that God just changed the rules of the game. He wasn't seeking his children to worship him on a mountain anymore 
or even a temple. He was wanting his children to worship him within their very beings with genuine hearts of love and devotion. It then hit me that we Samaritans do not believe in prophets. We believe there were no prophets after Moses, except for the one prophet who we're all waiting for, a prophet like unto Moses himself. The Jews call him the Messiah. So I said to him, when the Messiah comes, he will explain all of these deep things to us. And then he looked straight into my eyes and he said, I am the Messiah. I cannot explain this, but at that moment I believed him. The Messiah of the Jews, the prophet that we Samaritans have been waiting for, God's representative on earth was a Jew. And he was talking to me. He knew my past as well as my present, and he accepted me anyway. Some of his friends showed up at the well and they had food for him. They looked puzzled that he had been talking with me. But I was so excited that I had to leave and tell the elders of Sychar about this man. So I quickly ran back into the village. I was so enthralled that I forgot my water pot. And for the first time, with my chin held high, I looked into the eyes of the elders of the city and I told them all about my conversation with this Jewish man. Strangely, they believed me. Perhaps it was because I have never spoken to them before. Perhaps it was because they knew who I was and they've never seen me smile with my head up. So we all went back to the well to meet him after hearing him speak for themselves, the elders were so impressed that they invited him back to our village. I have been listening to him all day today. He's eating our food, using our utensils, and teaching us things that Jews are forbidden to do with Samaritans. He spoke about himself being the bridegroom and his followers from all tribes, tongues, and nations as being his bride. When he said this, I immediately remembered the stories I heard about Moses, Isaac, and our father Jacob. How each of them met their brides at wells. In fact, Jacob met his bride Rachel at a well at noontime. And then I thought to myself, I have been with six different men and now I have met a seventh man. And this man is the Messiah, the savior of the world. Could this man be my true husband? A man who will love me like no other man ever has? A man who will not use me or abuse me, but who will cherish me with God's own love unconditionally? Could he be the true bridegroom to us Samaritans, even to someone like me? Yes, I believe that he is. I have met the Messiah, God's representative, and he has accepted me 
an insignificant, worthless, sinful Samaritan, a five-timed divorcee, an outcast among my own people. He has accepted me, and he loves me, and he has invited me to be part of his lovely bride. I have been weeping all day, not tears of bitterness or pain. They have been tears of joy, tears of hope, tears of wonder. God knows who I am and he cares for me. He even wants me. Despite my checkered past, he adores me. Tomorrow I will leave the man that I've been living with. I'm not sure where I will go. But the Messiah will be with us all day. And he has invited me to spend the day with him. I am a changed woman. And I shall never forget this day. I can't wait until morning. Six years later, a Jew named Philip, a disciple of the Messiah, will visit Samaria and proclaim the good news. He will announce that the Messiah has died, has been buried, and has risen again on the third day. And he has now become a life-giving spirit to live in all who will trust in him. This Samaritan woman will be present when Philip preaches. Philip will baptize her in water, and for the first time in her life, she will experience the living water that flows eternally within her being. The very thing that Jesus said he would give her six years earlier if she simply asked. Not long after, Peter and John will visit Samaria. This woman will tell John the story of how she met Jesus at Jacob's well and the conversation they had. Many years later, John will write the story in his gospel. Who is the Samaritan woman? I'm not gonna answer that question. I'm just gonna make this statement. If God in Christ, if your Lord can love and accept and receive and adore, this woman, then how do you think he feels about you? We need to hear the story differently. And we need to tell the story differently. Both to the lost, who have never heard it right, by the way, most of them, and to our brothers and sisters, so that their hearts will burn inside their being and their eyes will be open to see this matchless, glorious, incredible Christ. But upon seeing him, brothers and sisters, everything changes. Tis the look that melted Peter. Tis the face that Stephen saw. Tis the heart that wept with Mary can alone from idols draw. We cannot obey him until we first see him. May God help us 
to tell the story differently. I would like to ask that you, on your off time, between meetings and naps, that you open up John chapter 4 and read it again and hear the story differently. And when you're done with that, take a look at Acts chapter 8 and find out what happened in Samaria. Thank you very much. Wasn't that beautiful? Thank you so much. Wow, the Lord is good. What a, what a rich feast.